timing of my conversation with today's guest could hardly have been more relevant given the lockdown scenario we now all find ourselves in due to the shocking effects of coronavirus. Indeed, the whole premise of your London Legacy podcast was for me to physically go out and about into our beautiful capital city, meet up with the most wonderful, fascinating and colourful guests in their space, whether at home, work or on location, and bring them straight to your device. Now, it was never my intention to interview guests merely over the wires or Skype or Zoom or whatever other online app exists. And unless COVID-19 locks me down for weeks more to come, I will do all I can to continue in this vein. Now, this week's guest is genuinely affable and ebullient. Howard Lewis, founder and host of Offline. What exactly is Offline? Well, it's a gathering of around 35 engaging, interesting people that meet every month in person over dinner in the charming, intimate setting of the famous Savile Club in the heart of Mayfair, London. Attendees straddle every conceivable area of life from finance to fashion, politics to fine arts. I'll let Howard explain exactly how it works. Plus, Howard is also director of the Shaw Collection, a privately owned art collection principally focused on old masters. Howard writes on art, travel and football and is a newspaper junkie too. I for one can't wait till the lockdown is lifted and I can get out and get along to my first offline dinner. I'm Steve Lazarus and this is your London Legacy. Before we meet this week's wonderful guest, here's a little something for you. If you're a fan of the show and would like to get involved and support us at Your London Legacy and help us keep producing amazing content just for you, you can get involved over on our Patreon page. We take every penny and we'll reinvest it back into the show. If you want to get involved and get hold of some really cool benefits or have us create your very own London Legacy episode or maybe meet up with us and other London Legacy lovers in London, you can do that too over at www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's get on with the show. So today finds me in uh, back in central London, in the Mar- Marlebone area of London, uh, not far from Baker Street Station. It's a, it's a beautiful part of London, although having spoken to my guest earlier offline, uh, Howard Lewis. Welcome to the podcast, Howard. Uh, it's good to have you here, or for me to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me to your lovely building here. In, it's a pleasure in to be Marlebone. here. Good to speak with you. Interesting to find points of commonality and points of complete difference. Yeah, no, absolutely. Which actually makes the world a much more interesting place, as we know, in other guises. It's it's fascinating. We've got, uh, we were talking before, we, you kindly took me out for a coffee and a, a bun, although you had the bun, I, I just had the you black coffee. You were just spectating. I was spectating while you were enjoying I thought you actually like donuts rather than buns. I do so. love donuts, but yeah. they weren't available uh, on, on that particular moment. So, <laughs> no, the, the moment passed and I just had to improvise. It's, it's fascinating to meet you. We we had we could have had a whole podcast just before we actually came online with what we were discussing, um, amongst other things, serendipity, which is a strong link into one of the things, one of the projects or passions you're working on, which is your offline uh, dinner club, for want of a better word. It's probably not a club. But serendipity is amazing because as I just spotted downstairs, I'm walking in a strange building with someone I've never met before and walk straight into a guy I haven't met since my school days. So... Um, it's well, obviously, great that you recognise each other. <laughs> well, he did say, how did I recognise him with no hair? And I said, well, you know, join the club. I'm thinning on top as well. But 40-odd 40, 40 years since I last saw Jonathan. Remarkable. Well, I, look, I, I think, I think th- th- there are many examples in life where you meet people quite randomly, quite unexpectedly, whether it's next to you on an aeroplane or whether you are invited to an event and someone somehow has a voice which you recognise or a look and suddenly you're transported another port in, in, in time. So I, yeah. I completely get that. Yeah. 
it's, it's interesting, actually, because not only did I spot him, and I was a bit unsure whether I would go up to him, but you said, go and say hello, go and go and introduce yourself. And I did. And immediately there was that spark of recognition. And it's not just having those moments of synchronicity, but it's taking the opportunity to pursue it. You know, to well, I think one thing we've talked about before, Steve, which is important, is the fact that far too many people are far too concerned with what may go wrong mm. rather than what may go right. It may well be he didn't recognise you. Maybe you got the wrong Jonathan Mann. Oh, not quite possibly, in which case very embarrassing. But in the meantime, well, but in the meantime, the embarrassment would last in all of three seconds, which yeah. point we would have turned around and gone to something else. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is too many people in life do not actually challenge themselves to ask that kind of question. And I feel that offline, talking about serendipity and randomness, which are two of the key components, the fact of the matter is that in the vast majority of cases, wherever you go, people find there's far more that connects them than separates them. Although you were talking about a very particular example, somebody you were at school with, nevertheless, there are all kinds of points of convergence which we all too often overlook. We're going to talk in some detail about, what do you call it, a project? What is it, offline? Your, I don't your, think project is probably quite <laughs> the right term. I think that, that always it's just a kind of structure or, or, or master plan. And actually, there's none of that. The, the whole offline concept came about years ago because I used to read so many articles in the press and so forth. Often I cut things out people I thought would like. And one day, one of my friends, one of the recipients... Hang on, let's just stop, stop there. Because you, you're saying it as if that's a normal thing for, that people do. You wrote, you were writing articles. No, I read articles you, you in the press. read articles. So I, so I read newspapers, magazines, uh-huh. periodicals. And I see an article. I thought, okay, Steve would like that, or Tom would like something else, or Jennifer over there. Is there another theme? So, so what would you do? Rip it out, send a little comp step saying, by the way, I saw this and I thought you'd like it. Um, and that was it. So, so there that's, was no ripping, that's ripping out in the physical world yes, rather than yes. cutting and pasting and dropping it on an email to no, somebody. Everything was in hard copy. Yeah, Bear in mind, I did this 20 years ago. Yeah. So in that sense, you know, so there was what, no online What was media. the thinking behind doing it? The thinking behind doing it is actually that it's great to share. And I'm a great believer that the people who actually generate most good fortune in life are those who are naturally givers. And if you give something without expecting anything in return, people typically respond in kind. And it was a very simple way of simply saying, hello, I was thinking about you. That was it. No objective beyond that. No requirement to do anything. Didn't ask you to do something in response. It was simply the fact I saw something. I thought of you. You might like it. Maybe you wouldn't like it, which case goes in the bin. But in the act of giving, you often change the dynamic or relationship with somebody. So you'd find an article in a newspaper, say, or a magazine. You'd think this could be relevant or interesting to a friend or an acquaintance. You'd actually cut it out. Handwritten that in my case, yes. Rip it out, yeah. With a handwritten note alongside yep, or a stick, it, a stick in an envelope. Stick it in an envelope, put a postage stamp yep. on it and drop it off at the, at the I mean, that's a lot of steps to take, which people just wouldn't even dream of today when it's not part of your business, it's not part of a str- it's just doing something because you think it's a nice thing to do. Well, funnily enough, at the offline dinner, obviously you're coming to one in a couple of, well, three weeks, now, March the 17th. Anybody's listening to this, by the way, there's an offline dinner on March the 17th in London. <laughs> Got to get the and, plug in. Well, it's important. Obviously, <laughs> yeah. Steve was going to be there because last time, unfortunately, he wasn't very well no. and didn't make it. But he's coming. And what I want to say about that is that I'm a great believer that randomness and serendipity are all too often your friend and not something to be feared or concerned about. There are many good things in our lives that actually touch upon us in a very modest way whether it's a feeling or a smell or a sensation or an unexpected encounter as you had with Jonathan Mann just before. But the simple fact is that these are all, in my view, 
be viewed as positives. Things may go wrong, but nothing so cataclysmic that you can never do it again, or you may somehow prepare for it for two years. Most things in modern life are very transient and ephemeral. And I think there's a kind of physical dimension to a lot of what I'm doing it offline, where number one, you get to the people around a table as a dinner. I'm talking, share a few stories. People who are there are random in nature, in age, in background, in competence, in sexuality, whatever it may be. I just don't care. What matters most of all is that people come with an open mind and a generosity of spirit. And if they do that, people typically reciprocate. And I have to say, that's also been a watchword over the many dinners I've hosted over the last five or six years. So you were saying before, I think we sort of diverged a bit, this sort of originated from you starting to send messages to people. Of inter- What was the response to people who you were sending these? Uh, they loved them. Cutter? They loved them. And, and so, you know, I, one person was saying, you know, thank you very much. I pursued a successful business deal based on something you sent me or somebody else said, that was great. I gave it to my wife and she really enjoyed it. Or a third would say, I found out about some wonderful hotel I didn't know about. The feedback was always great. People loved it. And I realized that actually there was a real appetite for information, for insight, expertise, in whatever form it may be. Sometimes it was serious, sometimes not at all. And for instance, whether it was an obituary about somebody or a report from the football or frankly about the conservation of giraffes in Africa wasn't terribly important. I just felt there was a, really a need for people to simply stop and think and read, almost give themselves five minutes out of their rather busy, frantic everyday lives. Where, where did this idea come from in your in your in your upbringing, in your ideology, where was the passion for doing this? Is it just an idea that came to you, or is this something you've been inspired to do or instilled in you since you were a young child to share? My father, certainly, who's still around and a very active guy, albeit a little bit older now, was always in the habit of tearing things out and sending things off, often for business purposes and so forth. But the idea of paper and messages and bits and pieces always lying around and there being somehow a flow was something which I do feel was there anyway. Now, of course, what you have to remember is that 30, 40 years ago, when we were younger and had hair, the idea of actually paper, the idea of actually writing a letter, which was sent in the post, took a couple of days to arrive maybe, you as a recipient then would consider what I had said, then you'd think about the response you would send back, and there was like a five-day period. Now everything's too quick. If you don't respond to somebody in three hours, they think there's a problem. And I think that becomes, unfortunately, a major impediment in terms of building relationships as well. People are looking for some kind of instant gratification. You don't get it liked or approved or ignored within a certain time span, something there's wrong with you. And I didn't ever have any kind of objective other than the fact that it's always a pleasure to give and to share. And I knew in a very simple, very innocuous way, perhaps, that an article, whatever the subject matter, was a means of doing so. And really, the feedback I got when I first hosted a dinner for maybe a dozen or so people, whereby... We shared a few articles. I took a private room in a restaurant somewhere and they all engaged and so forth. It made me realize actually that there's a great deal more that connects us rather than separates us. And once I realized, which is a real revelation for me, that people would pay to come together for a dinner. Now the dinners are much bigger. They're not, well, I mean, I've done dinners for probably 25 to 50 people. The optimum number is normally around, I find, about 30. Because if you have too many people, first we lose some of the intimacy. People get a little bit boxed in in a very crowded room. And I like it to be very fluid. I think I mentioned to you before, people pop out of the room 
to proceed in the evening, either for you know, the bathroom or make a call or whatever it may be. I say to people there, that's an invitation. An invitation, take their chair, meet other people. They find they come back from whatever they were doing and they go somewhere else. Good. All the better. The people don't want to meet on the table. Great. They put a chair, everybody squashes up and they just rejoin the place they were in before. But the point I want to make really is that most people, in my experience, are far too concerned with somehow ignoring or overlooking protocol or a certain expectation about how to behave. And in the end, it doesn't really matter that much. What matters is you come and you are there and you are engaged. I say to people, just get inside the tent. I think when you come from the left, the right, right, up above, just get inside. Once you're inside, nobody much cares what kind of shoes you're wearing or whether you do your hair in one particular fashion or not. What matters is that you're there and you're visible and you look interested and curious. Do not, frankly, go to events and look at people as though somehow there's an incredibly interesting object in the far distance over their left-hand shoulder, which all too often happens. Look people in the eye, repeat their name, quite important. If you forget their name, you ask them again. Not difficult. Forget a second time, the problem is you don't remember much from the first place. But nevertheless, be present, be available, look as though you're vaguely pleased to be there. So this isn't one of the typical classic networking sort of business type events like BNI or four for networking, one of those things. No, there's there's no, a, there's one thing I would say actually is that offline is really about building great relationships. I don't care what you do. I don't care how old you are. I've had people from 18 to 86, whether people are in banking, they're in politics, they're in fashion, they're in art, they're in frankly, whatever. I don't really care. That's not important to me. And I've had an immense cross-section of people come, some of whom I met quite randomly, quite unexpectedly, some personally introduced, some I reconnected with, some who emerged from quite surprising sources. But all the while, I don't have any kind of limitations on the type of person who should come. And moreover, any kind of business which may be conducted, I accept, but it's on the undercard. It's a secondary factor. Mm, that's interesting. So people should should go with an open mind, not with any expectation of an outcome apart from being open-minded and enjoying the evening in the company of other people. And as you say, good food, which is in a nice, beautiful venue with good, good food it. as well. That's it. I think, unfortunately, in the modern world, people are very inclined to overcomplicate life as though they worry too much about, you know, people often say, often men say to me, um, dress code. I always say trousers recommended. It doesn't matter. Nobody cares. As long as you're vaguely presentable, it's fine. But th this is at the Savile Club, isn't Savile it? Club. Which I've never been to, but I understand it's a beautiful venue. Yeah, so right. do they not have their own dress code? I mean, no? sort of no jeans or trainers or something like that? Well, or? I think that one, one assumes people exercise a real amount of common sense. But within that, no. There's no dress code as such. And I have to say, judging by the state of some of the members, I'm not sure that actually it crossed their mind in the first place anyway. But as long as you do look somehow vaguely presentable and you respect the club in the broad sense no it doesn't matter at all now the name offline obviously it assumes that you're banning all sort of social media communication when you when you're there turn your phones off and don't bring them with you was that part of the intention so people get their head out of their little rectangular box and just get into the real world for a couple of hours yes that's absolutely what it was. It wasn't the only thing, but it was certainly a dominant feature. And in fact, I can recall more than one young person saying to me, my God, I couldn't believe I got through the evening for three hours and without looking at my phone. Uh, as though somehow it was some kind of a revelation to them. But the other part of offline, which is very important to understand as well, is that I think most people in modern life are very, very narrow in their focus in terms of pursuing a particular path, 
particular order and so forth, and don't have enough curiosity. And the notion of off line simply to take a different trajectory, you simply wander off beaten track occasionally, just in terms of what you may see. And the best example I would give in a very simple way is the idea of walking on the opposite side of the road to the station in the morning. You still arrive at the same destination, but along the way, you'll see different facade to buildings, kids on the way to school. So taking a different route to the one you yes, would normally take. Yes. Yeah. You still arrive at the same place. It's not as though it's like you're going three miles out of your way, but simply to walk on the other side of the road, your perspective changes ever so slightly. And that, in my mind, is very valuable. People don't do it enough. Mm. That's almost like a form of mindfulness, isn't it? Being aware of your surroundings, being present in the moment, not with I, I think that mindfulness is a very, very generic term. Mm. I'm not entirely sure what it means, apart from somehow, as you say, being a bit more self-aware. Yeah. But I think that there's also a great fear among people today, particularly in the urban environment, where things are moving and changing so fast, that you're not maybe... You know, you're not somehow up with events, not doing it the right way and so forth. I think that matters a great deal. People create complexity for themselves and have struggled to find their way out of it. And I can only say that having hosted many events, I've actually never counted, but certainly 50, 60, and I've hosted things for other people as well. What I have found is that what matters most of all is what you give and what you share. And if you imbue people with those kind of qualities, they typically reciprocate in kind. And this is actually a very important point. I may have mentioned it earlier. If you are happy to share without accessing a return, you will typically be surprised on the upside. And the difficult thing is we live in a world where, whether we like it or not, there is a very transactional element to much of what we do. Whatever the activity Somehow you get a benefit or some indeterminate nature in the future. As long as there is no benefit, the pleasure you get is simply in that moment where a, a, a warm embrace, a smile, a shared joke, whatever it may be, brings you together. And I don't feel there's enough of it. People so why do you like, think that is? Why do you think few people either don't fulfill that role of giving without expectation or don't understand the benefits of doing it? Do you think it's just our upbringing? Do you think it's because there's this binary, you've got to win in, say in business, you've got to win at the expense of somebody else? We were talking about winners and losers and, and success earlier, which was an interesting scenario. What, why do you think it is that people don't give more without expectation? I think that we live in a world which is more visual than ever before. It's more connected than ever before. I think that there is ever greater scrutiny of what other people may have as opposed to what you may have, what you may belong to, where you're comfortable, where you fit. And I think that, in a sense, you know, the, 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 the speed of exchange is so great today that people also don't allow themselves time to absorb what has gone before. If you look, for example, at the idea of maybe 100 years ago, a farmer on his land wants to better understand how his business may be affected over the coming season. And what he would often do, he'd put his hat and coat on, he'd walk five miles through the fields, he'd observe nature, the lie of the land, the direction the wind was blowing and so forth. He gets to the other ends. He sit on the veranda with the farm on this property. They have a glass of lemonade together. Talk about the conditions which might affect their livelihood and so forth. And then walk back five miles again. And But all the while having time to think about what he'd learned, what he's observed on the journey. The problem today is that there is an unrelenting pace to life. And I don't think people allow themselves enough time to simply absorb, to reflect, maybe even change their mind. And I also think perhaps 
there has to be a result. People think there has to be a result and an outcome to everything they do. And that result obviously has to be a positive result from their perspective. You know, they have to have a win, a success, be shown. No, so you do something has to be transactional rather than just enjoying being in the moment or the process of, of a relationship, for example. But relationships are complicated. And I think that the problem you have today is that the sheer speed of everything overwhelms any kind of sensible and rational approach. Some people are very sensible and think things through, do change their mind, but it's almost as though speed is regarded as some kind of unalloyed virtue. You haven't got it, you're really not about with events, or somehow you haven't been able to respond in a timely fashion. There's a great virtue, I think, sometimes actually in saying, let me think about it, I'll come back to you. Or actually, even more, I'm not sure I understood that. Can you repeat that point for me, please? So somehow to admit any kind of weakness is some massive stain on your character. And I think to myself, I have more far more sort of people who actually say, actually, I didn't understand the question. Can you can you go through the game with me? People try and bullshit their way through because actually to indicate any kind of weakness or failure to grasp it at the first opportunity will be somehow, as I said before, a stain on their character. And I think that the competitive nature of modern life, and don't get me wrong, you know, we're sitting in a relatively fortunate position of a big city and a developed society where, to some extent, things we take for granted are part of the furniture. And you're coming from an emerging nation which is hugely competitive, and you're trying to make your mark, and you're trying to do it in a hurry, and of course you're trying to do it in conjunction with hundreds of millions of other people, not quite so simple. So I do have some sympathy nevertheless, but I just feel that on a day-to-day basis, there's too little time for reflection, for contemplation, thinking, reading, asking questions, and so forth. The fear of not being professional, the fear of not being up with events, the fear of not somehow being on top of your subject, and also the fear among older people that somebody 20 years younger is actually coming up, you know, and I can see actually I'm much, much smarter than me. That's a problem as well. So there are many, many factors in the modern world where I just sense that there is a kind of embarrassment that you are unable to grasp a subject, you're unable to somehow show your demonstrated expertise. And I'm not a big fan of social media. I think social media has some merits, of course. But the problem one also has is that although I understand it's great if you want to phone your aunt in Zanzibar and you can use Skype or whatever, the fact is you you can phone your friend down the road, but also walk down and knock on his door, and yet you don't, I also think it's a reflection of the fact that people become very lazy and people are looking for quick solutions which do not require any effort. Mm. And there's considerable evidence now to, to show that whilst social media can can be beneficial in, as you say, connecting with people, you know, get creating online communities, for example, that are doing good, there's a lot of evidence to say that it's bad for self-esteem, it's bad for sleep, it's bad for mental health. There's a whole raft of things uh, for addictions. It's bad for so many different things. So even to come offline just for a few hours, just to chill out and just enjoy other people's company without constantly flicking and that addiction to the next well, day. Well, I think there, there is a, look, you're quite right, Steve. I think it's a big problem. I mean, I think one thing you didn't actually touch upon within that, which has become very prevalent, is the number of suicides. Yeah. Not for young people who yeah. feel isolated, ostracized, Well, we need to go back a couple of weeks to the Caroline Flack uh, situation. Whether that was driven by social media, we don't know, but I, I, high I, profile. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sorry, I, I didn't actually know who Caroline Flack was until sadly I read the news about mm. her, 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 her suicide. But the fact of the matter is that there is a, an inability or an unwilling people to put their hand on and say, enough, or 
I can't cope, or this is not appropriate, or can you come back to me in three weeks' time? Somehow, there is within social media an immediacy. And of course, once you press the button, you can't turn back time. There's a wonderful quote I always remember from Mark Twain, the American writer, who said, a lie is halfway around the world before the truth has got its shoes on. And sadly, people do not think through the consequences of what they may say in that kind of environment. And I'm sure there are many Caroline Flack, sadly, who either were not listened to, who felt some capacity emotionally abused, maybe, didn't have an audience, didn't have anybody prepared to say, actually, yes, I will make time for you. Even say 10 minutes on Friday evening, I'll make time for you. And this fear that you cannot come clean and admit what you can't actually understand or know is becoming very, very dominant. And that, for me, in the modern world, in the developed world, certainly, becoming a massive problem. And the thing that really upsets me about things like you know social media is the, is the way that people are constantly comparing themselves to other people who they perceive have better looks, better body, more money, you know, whatever it is, they have more of. Look, I think most people, most people are inherently insecure anyway, and I think that social media is where it gives more license to those insecurities to bloom. Now, now you and I don't have that kind of problem because, of course. So incredibly handsome, so full of hair. Well, so, yeah. that's and why yeah, I do a podcast. That's right. And, you're, and, you're saying, and your natural charm somehow supersedes everything else. But for a lot of people, and I say it in all seriousness, you point out before yourself, the need to compare or benchmark yourself according to some kind of hidden set of metrics is becoming a major problem. I don't think there's a clever solution to it. I think like all these things, you do need to almost create a movement where enough people start to actually behave and act in a different way and it becomes almost a reflex. At the moment, from what it seems to me, and obviously I'm not an expert on social media, the fear of missing out is so prevalent and I'm finding I mentioned this in a book I've just written, one particular theme, one particular chapter I wrote, in fact called Lomo, which is actually the love of missing out. And the pleasure of saying, yes, I, I did nothing last weekend. I spent the entire weekend reading on the sofa. Nobody phoned me. I did my own thing. It was marvelous. That sounds wonderful. Sounds my sort of weekend. Sounds great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, and, and, and the truth is, why are more people not sharing it with us? Oh, it's not on the same sofa, of course. Probably not enough room. But you, know, you understand the point. Why is it somehow you've got to be seen to be active? You've got to be somehow seen as being progressive or you've got to be in, in, in some capacity doing something which indicates you are engaged by the world around you. And I think sometimes you can be engaged by the world within. And I find the pleasure of thinking and sleeping and lying and whatever it may be has much to recommend it. I just feel that, as I said before, too many people are too much of a hurry. I'm not sure where they're all going. Do you think there's, um, in, not, in a non-religious way, there's a spiritual element to that of being alone with your thoughts, with your consciousness, just resting the mind, so you become aware of, in a non-egotistical way of being? A little bit. A little bit. I mean, do, I, do you meditate, for example? No. I mean, do you meditate? Uh, yes, I do. I haven't done it for, been in the practice of it for several months, but I am due to go on a retreat in a couple of weeks, and I find it very, very therapeutic. What do you, what do you actually do on your retreat? 
you do a lot of meditation. Well, was, it, was it actually involved? Uh, well, well, it, 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 well it, it's, it's the meditation I do. is called Transcendental Meditation, or, okay. or, or TM. It's an ancient... From okay, Buddhist I've heard of that. In one sentence, what are you doing in your Transcendental Meditation? You're getting to a deeper state of consciousness. And when you come out of that, what do you feel? You feel more focused, more energized, more relaxed. You can sleep better. And there's much science to the collective benefits of doing it, the, the individual and collective benefits of doing it. And how long does your retreat last? Uh, the, the, who's interviewing here? Who here? Well, it's a bit of <laughs> no, that's absolutely fine. I have no problem. Um, this particular retreat is just a weekend. It's just okay. it's, it's either an overnight or a two nighter, depending if I want to stay an extra night. But you can do retreats that can go on for you know for a week, two weeks. You can you can go to India if you want to do a fully fledged retreat. I'm going up to to a beautiful building in Suffolk, far more exotic, called, called the Maharishi Peace Palace, which, um, which well, is a beautiful building okay. specifically designed for the process. But going back to your original <laughs> point, you know, do I, I don't do it. I don't do, I don't do any of these things. Mm. It's not. Not not knowingly. I mean, but if I'm sitting on a tube couch for half an hour, I just don't, is that not meditation? It, it absolutely is meditation, yes. It could could well be if you're... I think what you say, which is interesting, is the fact that people often feel the need to do something as part of a group. Hmm. The idea you say, why well, should I be meditating in the bath every night? I, I, I think maybe is not quite perceived in the same way. Hmm. It's almost like it gives them more credibility or more status. Say, actually, I went to a particular gathering and there were some experts there. And I must admit, I never thought of meditation ever until about three or four years ago. One of my daughters said she has to go to school very early, certain days of the week, because she was doing meditation. And I must admit, I wasn't entirely sure what she was doing, apart from that, obviously trying to obtain some kind of calm or mm. inner peace or mm -hmm. whatever it may be. But I suppose the difficult thing is that it's hard in the modern world to discern between so many spiritual movements. And I think, again, there's a lot of confusion as to what one means by these things and the way they're interpreted by different people. I am aware of it in generality. You do it. One of my daughters does it. I'm sure other people do it as well, besides. But to what extent is it simply a fancy name for what I'm doing sitting on the tube or in the bath? Absolutely. You could be achieving very similar results, if not, you know, better results. It's entirely mm. down to the individual and mm. their perceived benefits mm. that they get. Mm. But um, I'm just wondering if the problem people have today is they don't stop. And you've spoken about this repetitive syndrome. You've got to be in touch, fear of missing out the thing of comparison, the addiction to the swipe and the like and the follow and all this sort of stuff. Meditation is a way of just stopping and being and going to one of your dinners is another way of doing that, but in a group setting as well. And I think that's a, I think it's a wonderful thing that you do. And I can't think there's too many other groups or organizations that are doing anything similar. Are you aware of any other similar stuff? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm aware. I was a little bit odd. So it's quite possible that, yes, there are... Very few. There are a few things, but there normally is some kind of an objective. However, it's cloaked, whatever name you give it, or whether it's a particular methodology, and really at all ends of the market. You mentioned BNI, for example. I'm aware of BNI. I did actually go to a BNI in New York, fun enough, once because somebody I knew introduced me. I don't think I'll be back because. It's very, all, it's very structured. I just didn't feel that somehow it was in an environment where people were allowed to somehow linger. And I think lingering is good. Not everything has to be done in quick-fire fashion. You do need time to think and to reflect, look at something in the white of their eyes, 
or have a coffee with them. So I, I think it, it was almost like a bit like a scattergun approach where people say they're pitched for two minutes, whatever it may be, and then sit down, and then somehow it's regarded as being a positive energy. I didn't find it very positive at all, but that's just me. I, 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 I think the idea that I've got to follow a set of procedures is disagreeable. It doesn't really suit my temperament. Yeah, well, BNI has a specific aim, which is to generate business for your, for you or your business if you're representing a business. And by by attending a BNI, you've got to do, I think, one of three things. You've got to bring a referral for somebody else. You've got to bring a visitor. Yeah, it's, or, it's, 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 it's already complicated. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But the other was also easy, which I would touch on very quickly, is the fact that the event I went to, I don't know about other ones, the format of the room whereby they essentially have people sitting in a big square I think it's a very bad idea because every event I've organized, I really ensure that everybody's sitting on round tables. You need to look at people in the white of their eyes, you need everybody in your eye line. You need to feel as though somehow you are part of every conversation. And when you are issuing him with somebody who's 12 down on your side, that conversation goes nowhere. And I really believe that the initial impact is hugely important. Isn't difficult to pick it up in a rather staccato fashion down the line and bni in that particular context i didn't like because actually the dynamic of the room separate to actually what they were talking about mm. a slightly separate matter yeah no i mean I, I did bni for five years and i went through the chair and did all sorts of so i mean i've got a lot of positives to say about it but i think in this particular context it, it, it's not it's not for me certainly not for, hasn't been for me for many years can you think of some examples within offline where for example there'd been some is it serendipity Serendipity, serendipitous. I can't say serendipitous moments. Serendipitous. Yes, yes. That'll do as well. Yeah, there okay. you go. Serendipitous moments. Loads, loads, and loads, and loads. I mean, I, I mean two I think are particularly which is interesting because I, I they relate to a couple of corporate clients. Most of I hosted the one you're kind of on March the seventeenth. In fact, the private you just pay in a regular way, and but I do corporate events as well. And I hosted a corporate dinner about five years ago for a big technology company called Salesforce. And the backstory, in very simple terms, was I wrote an article somebody happened to see. It helped her get through a radio interview as it happened. She wrote a very kind note to thank me. We exchanged one or two emails thereafter. And she came to an offline dinner with her husband, who it turns out was, in fact, a senior account executive at Salesforce. And he really loved the whole concept. And he came a number of times with his wife. And I... I happened to meet him just after I'd written the very first corporate pitch for offline. And Salesforce at the time were very interested in getting closer to their clientele without selling anything. So I tell, I tell you what, I, I will host or curate a dinner for you. Maybe 20 people on my side, 50 people on your side, who I imagine will comprise management, clients, and so forth. And I said, I'll mix them all up. Different tables, like five tables of eight, maybe. I said to them at the outset, I offer you no assurance, whatever, that any of my people are interested in any of your products. But I say it's not really about offline Salesforce. It's really about how your people connect with my people and all their satellites thereafter. That's what the value is. Anyway, I host this dinner, and the story I'm actually going to relate to you comes directly from one of their clients who I became very friendly with. And he was the marketing director for The Economist magazine. Obviously, they were clients of Salesforce. And he said to me, they invited me. I happened to be free that evening. But he said, I really had no idea where I was coming for. It was a dinner as their guest. He said, you've got to understand that most events I'm involved with are very senior. They're very serious. They're very professional. Uh, every gathering 
our bios and agendas. It's all prepped to the intro of its life. He said, I showed up at the offline dinner. I found out that the fellow on my left was running a hedge fund. The lady on my right, well, she was a piano teacher. The fellow on the other side of the table, he was running a dog walking business. He said it was fantastic. It was so liberating that actually nobody cared what I did or my role or my supposed importance and status within that kind of corporate world. He said, from my point of view, that was the biggest blessing of all. He came, in fact, to a number of other dinners I hosted, both private and corporate. As a corporate, one other client I would mention, which is interesting, there's a particular story I want to share, an organization called Brand South Africa. Brand South Africa is basically the marketing arm of the South African government. And I've hosted for them, I think, half a dozen dinners over a period of probably two years, three years. I know the UK director very well. She's a very dynamic woman who I would not be at all surprised whether that was an ambassador for South Africa at some future point. Anyway, Brand South Africa has, I think, four or six outposts dotted around the world, really to share the story with a wider diaspora and so forth. Anyway, on one particular occasion, she said to me, look, I wouldn't mind coming to an offline dinner privately without having to speak and present and so forth. I said, fine, no problem. On the day of the dinner itself, she called me up to say, someone lets you know I'm coming. I said, great. And she said, I'm coming with a friend of mine. To which I thought to myself, not so great. Because by this point, the dinner was sold out. It was a table plan. I nailed it all and we were good to go. As a courtesy, I said, look, what's the story? Who is it? So he's a very good friend of mine. He's only on it for three days. Excellent company. And I think to myself, well, they all say that. What does he do? Oh, she said, he's the CEO of the Nelson Mandela Foundation. I said, guess what? You know what We'll squeeze a bit. <laughs> we go over him. <laughs> now, he came. Charming guy, probably late 30s, very bright. And I met him the following day for a drink. And he shared to me one brief aspect of his story, which I have to say, going back to conversation we had before about having an understanding of who you are and where you've come from. He said to me, I came from a very, very poor background. He said, I grew up in one of the townships in South Africa. He said, I never knew my father. He said, I was one of six siblings, only two of us left now. And he said, I was a good student. I was a bright kid. I worked hard and I wanted to go to university, but clearly there was no money. He said, I'm trying to explain my situation to my mother, who's a uh, an illiterate domestic worker. She understands to a limited degree, but not really. And he said, I made a bit of money, I had jobs on the side, it wasn't enough. And he said, there was the possibility of getting a bursary if I could raise a certain amount and then the government would match it. He said, I'm sitting in the family shack, trying to spend it to my mother. He said, my blind grandmother is lying on the stone floor. She overhears the conversation. And she says, son, I will give you my monthly pension as this family's contribution to your future. And that son, plus wherever he saved, plus the worst we got into university, the rest you know. There's an amazing story in terms of actually the humble beginnings, what people even at a very basic level prepared to give to help others succeed. And he, uh, a remarkable guy, his name is Selo Hatang, um, I haven't seen since, it's probably two, three years ago. But the fact of the matter is that as offline, whether it's the example of fellow from The Economist or indeed Sebo Hatang, there are all kinds of examples where people surprise you and on the upside. People with random conversations, isolated links. You were talking about, you know, uh, meeting somebody downstairs who you haven't seen since you were at school. Just this morning, I had a situation where two people sat next to each other at a dinner completely randomly. One of you I knew very well, a girlfriend of mine based in Mexico. Next to a guy who I only met once before, an entrepreneur based in the west of England, 
She, my Mexican friend, was a huge aficionado of a festival called Burning Man, based in, I think, Nevada or Arizona. It's a huge thing which really brings together all kinds of nihilists and people who are living slightly on the edge of society. Why don't we somehow recreate a way whereby people are able to engage with all the accoutrements of modern day life? Anyway, big event, festivals, events. Burning Man is symbolic of, I suppose, really ourselves of all the kind of material aspects of modern culture. Anyway, she was going there for the seventh time in a row. It turned out he was going for the very first time, literally the following week or the week after, and they met there. Now, I have no idea what happened afterwards. It doesn't really matter a great deal. But the fact is, again, completely random moment. Two other people I knew, one of whom I know a long time in the insurance world. He moved up to Derbyshire, various reasons. I put that to a woman who, again, I hadn't known before. She'd approached me after an article was written about offline. She, in fact, was the head of external affairs for Slimming World, the magazine, which I had to say, I'm not fishing on these things, but very popular magazine in its particular area. It turned out they live 20 miles one away from another in Derbyshire. Now, again, no particular consequence, except for the fact that one finds again and again and again points of connection, points of convergence. And uh, the one thing I've learned about offline really is that once you give people permission to be a bit vulnerable, suddenly they can't quite stop. It's just getting past first base world to people, which is the problem. Is that because that's their normal state of being, is being vulnerable, and it's all been clouded with, you've got to be this, you've got to put up this front, I think people and you strip away these social layers that are put upon us? I think, as I said before, we live in a very visual world. Everything's recorded somewhere benchmarked on a list mm. and i think people feel very exposed and therefore they lack confidence i said before people are very very insecure often people who are in very senior positions people who are in the corporate world who are often very good at one or two things but very scared to be out of their comfort zone and there is a certain benefit in repeating the same behavior if enough people in your peer group are doing it as well it sounds rather peculiar in a way but it may be a bad idea, but if enough people who are broadly speaking within my kind of demographic are doing the same thing, I feel a little less uncomfortable than I would do if I was doing it on my own. But I, I think that uh, I have to leave that kind of analysis all the clever people like you because obviously meditation, apart from in the bath and on the tube, doesn't really feature too much. But what is very clear to me is nevertheless, wherever you go, there is, I think, a fundamental goodness to most people they just need to draw it out a bit more without worrying about possible consequence in a negative way. Let's take a very quick break just to remind you, if you love the show and would like to get involved, grab some cool stuff, get shout outs on the show, have us create your very own London Legacy show, or you meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger, just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. So is this what your book is about? Serendipity and offline? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Themes around you know, the, 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 the joys of randomness, charms of imperfection, about how to conduct yourself, how to, in a way, build great relationships without working too hard at it. I think people overthink their lives in terms of what they wear, and the club they're a member, or whether they go on holiday, or a whole range of external factors, which I think is designed to give them a kind of confidence. I, I don't think that matters quite so much, but I cannot deny that in the modern world where everything is immediate and very visual, there's no escape. And I'm sure there are 
addictive aspects to people's personality. Some people, whether it's frankly social media, whether it's food, whether it's driving fast cars, have an inability to say it's enough. I know some people who say, you know, I I I can't eat one biscuit, so I have one half a pack. And it's very hard to stop yourself unless there's a very good reason not to. So some people don't start. But yeah, I I I in the offline book, I really reflected upon many experiences over a period of time, both within the art world where I got some experience and also travel and so forth, where again it's about ways of looking, ways of communicating, sharing ideas, being to some extent challenged whereby your view may be completely wrong. Where are you now with the book process? Well, the book actually is written. Well, it's actually done. And I'm in the process now of choosing the right publisher. And there are three publishers particularly interested. Two in America, where I went recently. Um, one over here in the UK. And I've got a, diff- a difficult decision to make. I'm not going to do it straight away. I'm going to give myself a bit more time to think about it. A lot is going to depend upon the marketing and distribution afterwards. Um editorial input is important to a degree but i think in a way the aftermarket is more important from my point of view so again taking i suppose the offline concept or the offline idea i'll take a chance so moving on you 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 spoke about briefly your involvement uh with art and you are director of the shaw collection can you just Talk us, talk to us about sure. that a little well, bit. Well, talk us about my family. I, yeah. I, I happen to be supervising it because we have a collection which is quite diverse, mainly focused on old master paintings, which I think for most people would be considered classic art, which is in our case 15th to 18th century. And we have 19th century collections and 20th century and other fields as well, such as prints and books and so forth. So, how far back does this collect in the family? How far back does this collection Start go? Start my father uh-huh. and my mother to a degree. Say so fifty years, right. um, and my father had no background at all. My, there was no history of that in the family. Uh, my father, fortunately, had money in business, and it was a passion. He started very slowly, and bit by bit, he got more confident. He started buying originally prints, twentieth century. A few names you'll know, maybe Picasso or, or Redon or Renoir. Again, small amounts of money. And then got introduced to Old Masters, which was obviously earlier periods. Then started buying the old painting. And he had a real appetite for, I suppose, the intellectual side of it. And he read a great deal. He was befriended by certain dealers, became a bit more confident. And bit by bit, it grew. And it grew to the point where actually we had no room left in our homes. And we started on a very, very small scale lending to the old museum. And the feedback there was tremendously positive. And it gave people the opportunity to see things which obviously were beautiful and fascinating in their own right. It meant we could defray some of the risks by not having these all in one place, which we don't like anyway. And I am really acting as a kind of custodian. So it's not mine. It's not really belonging to any one person. It's a collective of the family. But our view as a family is that if you're fortunate enough to own lovely things in the first place, so you're right and properly try and share them as much, as much as reasonably possible. And because we have so many things now, and far too many things to hang on different walls, we are always pleased, obviously subject to usual caveats, to share. So to museums here in the UK, in America, Ireland, and other places besides. And the condition we always impose is if you borrow something like that, it's got to be up. 
I don't want to find out we've lent something to you. You put it in a storage vault for three What's years. the point? Why would somebody do that? Has, I mean, has that happened to you? It happens quite often. Not why? To us. Why, why do they bother them in the first place? Because in many cases, museums are quite political. The things don't always have amount of space available or there are short-term exhibitions. So it, it does happen. Or they just assume that at some point they can rotate. And we just say, no, you may have your own reasons. Unless there's some exceptional circumstance, we like things to be up. They've got a problem. That was their problem. Somebody else have a chance. We have them back, put them around their own homes. But we have other things as well. We have print collections. We have book collections. And we learn those as well. And again, the same notion that always great to be able to spread learning and knowledge and understanding, insight. And obviously, these things are able to research if they want. But it's really about getting it out there. And as I have just been in America one city I visited, in fact, was San Antonio in Texas. And the reason I was there is we lent a few paintings and I went to look at them and meet the director and so on and so forth. And I said to them, by the way, if you would like, I'm happy to talk to your patrons and your docents and so forth about the collections and the pictures on loan. And they were delighted. And so Bodgeville came and I spoke and tried to share and ask questions and for them to ask questions with me. And that engagement is incredibly important. I think that, again, I'm well aware of people who bought things and put them in some kind of free port, as though somehow it's just a financial asset and wait for the right moment and they'll sell it on. From our point of view, the investment was never really a factor. If it went up, it's a bonus, but it wasn't really a motivation at all. So my role specifically is to provide oversight in terms of what we have, relations with museums, other institutions, um, some major, some minor but in some ways actually be able to help a small institution where one particular loan or maybe a little bit more can have a significant impact is all the better we're all so, so where are they, are they exhibited currently in in london for example in the in in the uk so, uh, so no well it's a number of americans as i mentioned yeah. before so as in san antonio texas we've got some things there uh, we've got things also in phoenix we've got things in boston we've got things in well in the uk what have we got English Heritage, we have nothing's on loan to their properties. We have things at uh, the Walker in Liverpool, um, the, the, the Bows, all kinds of museums. Some your listeners will know about, some necessarily they won't. A lot of things in Ireland, Hillsborough Castle, Dublin Castle. And again, these are all public collections where the public are getting the opportunity. You obviously, look at other things as well. We've got everything there, but we like to share and we like to, in a way, give people the opportunity to listen, to learn, to ask questions about things maybe they're less familiar with otherwise. But it's been a very, very strong practice of ours that wherever possible, we try to be helpful. It's the same concept as you were saying, giving without expectation, just giving so other people can benefit and grow and learn. Yeah, we, I think from, we, we do have an expectation people look after them yeah. and they meet oh. reasonable costs and so forth. But yes. Presumably I, there's a fee for them. No. Buried. no there's no, 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 no fee at all. It's not like no taking a Obama Yang on loan for a season. They have to pay a large fee for it or something. <laughs> well, that, unfortunately, it not work quite the same way. There may be some people who do charge, but we, 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 we have never charged for lending. The pleasure in the way is in a way be able to give so they just usually pay people. transportation and insurances yes, and all the rest yes, of it yes and yeah. that's absolutely right albeit yeah. there are many examples I actually used one example of a particular item a very big map we bought and uh, it was originally created for the Vatican in 1650 or so and we thought it should go back to the Vatican it was obviously the ideal place for it and when it came to the matter of insurance the Vaticans came out and said actually we can't afford it and I thought that's interesting the well, Vatican can't afford yes, it hang on let that sink in for a second <laughs> That is yeah. why, no doubt, it is the richest institution on earth. 
Yeah. They could not afford a very, very modest premium. So, yes, there are all kinds of extraordinary things. The word tight you. comes to mind. or well, It's not, you know, it's yeah. not supposed to being tight. The question is, really you've got to understand is, you know, how can they possibly value riches of almost incalculable value? Mm. And, you know, obviously, in certain places, you get what's called a, a, an indemnity, a government indemnity whereby if it's a museum of great repute, the government will step in as a supporter or funder of last resort. But in most cases, that doesn't apply. You have to get commercial rates. And it just happens at the Vatican, who you imagine would be not stretched in any financial mm. sense, could not or would not pay. But we also have many examples of things which are in very small collections where the works in question were uh, particularly opposite to that location. I'll tell you one thing which is interesting. We bought a couple of portraits many years ago by the Victorian artist Millet, M-I-L-L-A-I-S, husband and wife, family made money in coal, and in the Victorian custom had their portraits taken. Anyway, we bought these two pictures at auction and a few days later, the auctioneer called to say, look, sorry to bother you, but we've had an approach from the underbidder, people you picked to win them, and they'd like a word. And we said, about what? Uh, the auctioneer said, we're not quite sure, but obviously reasonable confidentiality and discretion, we didn't want to give you information away straight away. I said, fine, put them on. They called a few days later, and the call actually comes from a fellow who's the governor of a school. Couldn't quite work out what the connection is. But anyway, what emerged was, in fact, that he and his colleagues were governors of his school. And this school had originally been the home of the sisters of these two portraits. And they also heard through the grapevine that these things came up for sale. They had a budget. We put them at the post. And they said, would we consider lending them back to the museum? And we said, okay, well, give them a bit of background information and so forth. We had no idea what the school was. Is it a college for education? Is it something, you know, it turned out, in fact, it was a co-educational boarding school for boys and girls from 6 to 16. So in the countryside, the West Midlands, and the consensus of everybody we spoke to in the art world was, you, you'll be completely mad. I mean, lending to a school, you'll have centrinians, they'll be daubing the walls, and yeah, there'll be chaos and everything. Anyway, we went down there, they were all very, very sincere, there's a lot to them, you know, the governors, the trustees, the headmasters, and we armed and armed a bit, and yeah, we said, okay, look, Subject, in fact, you glaze them, put you know, glass over them just in case, meet the insurance. The answer is yes. And they've been there for over 10 years now. They're wow. on a main staircase, loved by a succession of teachers, guests, pupils, whoever, and without blemish. And it's actually a lovely story as much as it does show how often smaller organizations have the capacity to surprise you on the upside. You think, well, they'll be very serious. They went after Actually, they've been terrific. And I can think of institutions where they are often great repute, where they haven't been quite so careful. So it's just a lesson to me that sometimes in life, give the small guy a chance. The underdog may often surprise you by the care, the concern, the appreciation. It's like business in a way. Some people are very, very big and very successful. I'm a bit blase. It's just one more thing. It doesn't matter that much. And we've always tried to be constructive and helpful as much as we reasonably can. And even in San Antonio, which is a museum of some consequence, but they were relatively weak in this area, which is why it was great we could help them, they were immensely appreciative. And they came in their numbers and they asked questions and they were engaged and they were curious. And for me, in a way, that was a great pleasure. Now, 
Long term, what will happen? I don't know. That's down to all, probably all, all, all my children and all their cousins and so forth. But I like to think that we would keep it intact, with a view to actually sharing wonderful things, different categories. Not everything is to everybody's taste. One has to understand that we actually don't have that much contemporary. Few things, but it's not really a strong part of our collections. Um, some contemporary is good. Some of it, in my view, is terrible. And interesting, I find out I am a judge for an art prize. Here in London, I've got a meeting tomorrow with my fellow panelists. It's a our prize which has emerged in the last five years, sponsored by a major law firm here, and one does see a remarkable range of abilities. This is contemporary art, contemporary modern created, artists, yes, yeah, in London. Yeah, it's called the Emerging Artists Prize. Some emerging artists are not so young; some of them have forties or sixties or whatever. But I think what is interesting, which I want to touch more quickly, because you mentioned it before in slightly different context. The number of people, Steve, who participate, who said they took up painting because actually they were either suffering some mental condition or looking after somebody else who suffered a, a, a physical condition or they were damaged by PTSD or they had some trauma in their life or indeed there was some kind of factor which caused them to take it up and it was calming and they enjoyed it to another world. And it is extraordinary how sometimes small things like that can make a big difference. Now, it's not to say that all of them are hugely talented. One or two, obviously, have been terrific, in fact. And no doubt they'll be exhibited in due course. But it is interesting, going back to the subject of how you're able to almost repair the mind and to what extent art in that form, even I don't personally like it, that's obviously an individual taste. And yet, again and again, music does the same thing to a degree. Music has the ability also, I think, to repair the mind or the senses, you might say. And all this sort of stuff to me is about communication. So going back to offline for a second, offline really is just a platform to bring people together. That really is it. I can't say there's some kind of master plan or some you know, grand objective, not at all. What I hope is that 30 or so people come together, some of whom I don't really know at all, some of whom I know very well, mix them all up, take a chance allow people permission to be vulnerable, to show off aspects of their character where maybe in our situation they'd be a bit more reluctant. But I always very keen to emphasize how hopeless I am at different things. And having a message of myself to them is almost therefore an open path for them to do the same thing. And that in the end goes back to my point we discussed when we had a coffee. The two most important ingredients in business and in life in my experience are confidence and trust. If you share those two quality with people, you will find they repay you in droves. I think it's getting over the lines that's important thing of all. Confidence in other people or confidence in both. yourself or both. both. But confidence in other people particularly, because yeah. people feed off positive energy. Yeah, because a lot of people don't have confidence in themselves and they find they really struggle with that for all the reasons we've discussed. But I think that people often have a notion that somehow you've got to lead a successful life and somehow all aspects of success. In other words, not only are you clever or you made a lot of money or you are impossibly good looking or you still fit the same clothes you did 25 years ago. You know, life's not quite so simple. The idea that we all pass the test and we are all getting a routine 93%, whatever the question may be, is complete nonsense. And yet people are very, very constrained by convention, by the, the the view of the majority, the desire to conform, but without somehow feeling as though they have nothing distinctive to offer. The idea on the one hand, yes, okay, you are not somebody who stands out as being 
obviously bad at something, but by the same token, you become part of this huge homogeneous mass. There's nothing interesting about you at all, except that it is. Now, I, I think myself, if you go back to basics, what does it mean for the, a successful life? Is it, to my mind, what matters most of all? From my perspective, try to be a good and kind person. That's all. I mean, and everything else, yes, hopefully you've got some competence or you're particularly skilled at music or you're very fast at running or you've got impeccable taste in flowers or whatever it may be. It doesn't really matter a great deal. If you start on a basis that you are good and kind without doing it to excess, people typically respond in kind. I think the problem thereafter is the fact that everything is visual, everything is rated, everything's in a hurry. There is a huge pressure to conform to success in a rather binary fashion. How do you measure a successful life? That's one interesting question to me. I mean, I don't think it's an for that. No, being good and kind and, and community-spirited and minded is, is probably the best way to, to put it because everything else material is just that. It comes and goes and you can't take it with you. Your legacy isn't whether you drove a nice car or became CEO of a company. It's what you did for other people, isn't it? And how, the, the good I things you did way, in your life. I think you're right. I think the way you're perceived and what you draw upon that for yourself is very important. I think that you know, a lot of people are motivated for the wrong reasons. And you know, it's my earlier point about not being afraid to fail. You know, I can tell you that I am reliably useless for most things. Thank God for that. You know, imagine going through your life obsessed with always winning and receiving the adoration of your peers. I mean, some people do. Some people are very happy with it. But I think it's a rather empty life. People who actually tell you how hard they work, the fact they work 16 hours a day when they're real weekend. Well, okay, there are situations where that's probably required. Maybe your business is struggling, it's your name over the front door. I get it. If you're working with some major corporate you say to me, you're working 16 hours a day. Is that some kind of badge of honor? I think you're a schmuck. Because <laughs> I think what it says to me is actually, you don't see enough of your husband or wife or your kids. You don't have any balance in your life. And okay, there are always exceptional circumstances. But to do it routinely, I think it's actually a very negative approach. I think that balance, proportion, very important. And being kind and good to yourself, rather than the way you're perceived by the outside world, also incredibly important. Now, I'm, I, I don't meditate as we discussed before um certainly been on a retreat but i think in a funny way everybody meditates without necessarily realizing it's just not called that the most are just standing you know in the shower sitting on the toilet you know waiting for a call they're all bite-sized chunks of meditation absolutely yeah but i think the problem in a way is that the terminology has become very very nebulous and people are quite quite able to define what is mindfulness supposed to let's say spirituality i'm not sure i could if you ask me for a very formal definition i've got a feeling but i couldn't say with any kind of certainty and i think it's very important to be specific uh, and also as i said earlier if you're not sure ask a question you know it's not that somehow you put your hand up and there'll be some kind of thunderbolt from the heavens you know you'll be turned into a pillar of salt nobody cares that much i think that when you show vulnerability to other people they, in a way, find more to celebrate with you. you know, when your focus is always on outperforming and always somehow outdoing the opposition and being obsessed with improving your figures, whether it's about your sales figures last month or whether you know, you're running. I mean, I'm not. Are you a runner, by the way? Uh, not really. No, I, don't no, I don't get much I mean, pleasure you know, from it. I'm, I'm trying to see people you know, running past. I think you know, all these people are so late. 
know, so late they're always running, and so late they're actually have actually managed to get dressed properly. They're running in a single pair of shorts. And the other thing, of course, I watch people running in the park. Everybody looks over in agony. Nobody runs fast with a big smile. I'm like, fine, I'll, I'll give that a go next time. No, they're all in pain looking at their watch or their device, working out how many steps they go. They go, oh, it's crazy. And people say, that's a pleasure. I, I don't get it. Now, not that I necessarily the, 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 the authority of this sort of thing, but nevertheless, you know, the idea that somehow, I watched something the other day about people who go on retreats to stretch themselves. So somehow to find their physical limits, you know, go to maybe some great endurance. I said, that doesn't look like fun to me at all. But, you know, but you, you could be on the sofa, eating all the donuts, watching the football all afternoon, you know what I mean? which is a far more sensible use of your time. Talking of football, we haven't touched on the red and white no, scarf on, on, on the desk next to you. I was trying uh, to be discreet. Uh, well, hardly, but I met you had this great big Arsenal scarf draped around your neck. So Arsenal, obviously, um, you know, I'm from the other side of North London. Um, Arsenal, the love of your life. You're, I think you're a season ticket holder or a regular. I am a season ticket yeah. holder, yeah. 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 What, do you, what do you think of the team this year? Making making improvements under your new manager? I think he's good. I like him. I, I was a big fan of Wenger, who I know did well divide opinion in the closing stages, but was a remarkable guy and transformed both Arsenal as a club and English football in general. Yes, but I think in a way, going back to the earlier point, people's expectations are often completely unreasonable. And there's no team, for that no individual, who can point to unalloyed success Year after year after year after year, people are often very unreasonable in terms of expectations. Totally unreasonable. And I, you know, I, I look at Tottenham. Tottenham got a good team. Okay, I wear that Kane and Son are out for the season. That's a big blow for you. In your purple patch, two, three years, great side, no question at all. I mean, now you need to rebuild, in all honesty. A bit like Arsenal. Still a good side, not a great side. We had the great side. We now have some very good young players. I, fun enough, have been away for two of the most recent performances against Newcastle Everton, where they actually won one comfortably, won a bit more closely. Um, so they were actually to do it without me. I generally very, very appreciative of, not so much, funny enough, football I love. I watch it all my life, and I'll hopefully watch it the day I die. But I do notice one thing, which maybe other people are not so aware of. Before and after the game, I always watch who shakes hands with his opponent with real feeling and meaning. Some of them want to know each other from other clubs. Some people are just genuinely warm or they're appreciative and so forth. And I like that. And on a very basic level, I love football. And I must say, a very charming story in a slightly different context. I, about two years ago, went up to the northwest of England with my girlfriend. We got invited by a friend of mine who was involved with a charity all to do with actually uh, horses, which are, again, at an earlier point about state of mind, it's called horse herd, I think. And horse herd basically uses horses to help people who are mentally disturbed. Either they've got some kind of physical disability or they've had some mental problems, because the horses apparently are very, very good at actually judging the mood or temper of person on them. Very, very calming influence. Yeah. And yeah. I think well, well, the way they just trot along is also, again, it's quite metronomic and it's soothing and so forth. Anyway, there was an event up there. She said, would you come? We said, okay, fine, we'll go up there. I've never been that part of the world. My girlfriend, who's French, has certainly never been there. It was near Accrington in Lancashire, up in the sort of, you know, um, Ribble Valley and so forth. Anyway, I said to my friend, we'll come for the weekend. And I said, if you can, find out if there's a game on locally. 
know what level it is, can be, you know, second division, third division, whatever. It turned out, in fact, the weekend in question, there was an international break. As you're probably aware, there were no games top flight, I mean, Premiership and Championship. I said, don't worry, keep going. Still nothing. I said, don't go mad, but anything within like a 20 mile radius. People were either away or paying on the Sunday night, whatever it was, it just didn't work out. I said, don't worry, keep going down. Cut a long story short, she says, okay, I spoke to a friend of mine. We've got tickets for Chorley Town against Nuneaton Borough in the National League North, I think it was. And we go down there. And I always remember sitting a probably a crowd of Couple 800, hundred. No, more, about <laughs> yeah. 800, 000 people maybe. What you find interesting about watching it at that level is, on the one hand, there are players who are often talented on the way up. Occasionally, players who are actually very well known on the way down. And in between, you know, players who actually aren't very good at any sets, <laughs> but you know, they're there. Anyway. It's yeah. fine. Anyway, yeah. the game finishes 2 2. I only saw one goal, the first goal. I missed the second goal because, in fact, it was, it was one at half time. We went into the clubhouse. Word got out somehow that we were from London. We'd come 300 miles to watch a very modest game indeed. We had no to deny the team. And the club archivist got wind of this and insisted on showing me his scrapbooks from the 1968 combination cup winning team. I'd be honest with you, I couldn't get rid of him. I thought, I've got to get out. The, the, the game's got to start. Anyway, I thought, I've got to go. It's like, there's a roar. I realized, yes, I, the hope team just equalized. And thought, <laughs> he just saw one goal out of four. I thought, yeah, one, one I missed because it was behind a pillar. It was in the way. The last one was before the end. But what I remember was that Nuneaton Borough, of course, in non-league grounds, you can move around the whole thing. There are very few spectators. At one end in the first half, there were two Nuneaton supporters on their own, and they unfurled a huge flag saying, Nuneaton Borough, Pride of the Midlands. I thought, yes, I, I love that. I love the fact, you know, so they've come to some muzzle ground, freezing cold weather. They've got the flag out and they are still passionate enough to come support their team. That was great to me. And I have to say that football has a wonderful way of unifying or uniting people who are often from entirely disparate backgrounds. It's not going to almost a religious body, you know, wherever you may be, where you come from, you're all there basically for one particular focus. And I have watched games Although it's funny, very recently I went to watch, in fact, Bayern Munich against Borussia Dortmund in, in the Bundesliga because a very good friend of mine is German, got tickets somehow, went for the night, and, you know, and although the game was very one-sided, it was 4-0 to Bayern, what a great experience. And I just find that I like the sense of communion with other people. So whether it's really sharing art, whether it's offline dinners, whether it's going to the football, all these things, I suppose, in a way, do have a kind of common theme, which is I like being around people. And I don't say you need to see them all the time or become best friends with them. But nevertheless, what I do find is that when you share your passion openly, it tends to give other people a fillip and they are positively engaged themselves. And hopefully they take that kind of philosophy into those in other ways. Yeah. Well, we're now at that point in our conversation with Howard, um, when Howard's going to reveal to us one or two places in London, because after all, this is your London legacy, a couple of places in London that Howard finds particularly interesting or fascinating or personal to him for whatever reason. So take it away, Howard. Thank you very much, DC. Well, I thought what I would do is I would just touch upon a couple of things which are very personal to me, one of which is my football team, which used to have the most wonderful ground Sadly, it is no longer with us as a football ground. It's a block of flats now. It's a block of flats. I, I must tell you a racing story very quickly about that. When the ground was redeveloped, it's a listed building, so also there were certain conditions attached. 
one of my very good friends took the opportunity to buy one of the flats. Mm. And so we should say this is Highbury. This is this is Highbury, the, the, the old ground. That's right. Not, not 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 modern, which is not quite so attractive. And he bought a flat which was in fact sited on the exact spot of the home dressing room. And about a year or so after the event, he got a call from the club saying, um, we, "We've had an approach from an unnamed source for this particular flat because of its location." And um, the person concerned is prepared to offer you double your money in one year. And my friend said, actually, I don't need the money, but thank you very much indeed. But can you tell me how interested who this person is? Oh, they said it's Arsene Wenger. I thought you were going to say George Graham. Okay. Yeah, it was Arsene Wenger. Arsene Wenger, obviously busy with other things. Yeah. Then he got around to it a year later, but he said no. And But quite interesting. That was a hybrid, the old ground, was a wonderful, wonderful ground. You go to some places like the Emirates, which is the modern-day ground, very impressive architecture. It's really like going to a multi-purpose events facility. You'd easily be there for a political rally yeah. or a pop concert. Highbury was instituted on the old ground. I've got great memories. And I do walk past sometimes when I go to see Arsenal at a new stadium. But it is a reminder of a life lost. Still got the facade there, I think, hasn't it? Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. listed, of course. They have yeah. to be very careful about conservation issues and so forth. So occasionally I, I go, but I do see it. But that was a most wonderful building, iconic, and it is a big part of my life, albeit we are playing just, you know, a quarter of a mile away at the new stadium. Mm. The other thing I want to mention very quickly in terms of London life, I'm very interested in the whole matter of genealogy, family history. Uh, and my family all came over from, well, my father's family certainly all came over from Europe over the sort of mid-19th century. And one of my, well, I should actually go back and say my great, great, grandfather was a man who built a very interesting business out of beads and toys and so forth quite an unusual business at that time in london one of his sons ended up marrying to a family who were the biggest manufacturer of pickles and pickles and sauces they bought at that time and i would say that i've retraced steps they undertook mainly in and around spitalfields bell lane uh, Bethel Green, often with pleasure, sometimes with frustration, trying to pick up clues and say, well, now I'm touching with some of my cousins as well. But that's been a reminder to me of how London has changed and yet how London has remained the same. London's grid doesn't really exist in any conventional terms. Certainly, as the Americans don't understand it, London's a very old city, a city full of surprise. And I would also mention very quickly on the subject, there are two or three great small museums in London, which again, slightly tucked away or maybe not playing profiles as others. One I recommend very quickly, anybody listening, is the John Soane Museum in Lincoln's in the Fields. And uh, fascinating. What's, like, what's like a house can you find there? Paintings, antiquity, all kinds of objects. It was his house. Soane was a businessman, he's an architect, in fact, and he, he became a great collector. And he, when he died, left his house to the nation. And it's basically intact. And it's extraordinary to walk around it. And when you go into the vaults, where you have all incredible sarcophagi and masks and all kinds of objects of antiquity, it's extraordinary. Only there are a few people there at a time, because you'll be very careful. Because of the, you know, the, the no, I've not been there. Too. We'll have to put a tag on that. In the, uh, anyway, so that, that yeah. is a, three quick step shots. Number one, Arsenal, particularly the old ground. Number two, retracing your steps through my genealogical inquiries, particularly in the east end of London. And finally, 
the Soane Museum in Lincoln's Inn Fields, a treat both for residents of London, if you haven't been before, and indeed people coming from further afield. Yeah, no, three fascinating and different, very different places in London, which we shall add them to our compendium of ever-growing places. Um, I'm not so convinced about the Arsenal. No, I'm joking. It, 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 it is. Uh, it was a wonderful stadium, uh, even as a Spurs fan. He went there and, you know, saw us, got beaten many, many times. But I think on that note, uh, Howard, it's, it's a perfect point to conclude our our fascinating conversation and move around uh, London and America and your art world and your offline. So how can people find you, find out more about you? How can they find out if they want to come to one of your dinners, which is obviously what it's all about? Well, the first thing to say is I've got the website. I'm not, as you probably gather from this interview, a huge aficionado of the online world. I've got a website, which is basically offline and on.com, as it sounds, all one long string. There should be some methodology whereby you can actually sign up. I'm not sure that it's such a thing. Basically, what you do is either you look at the website, get an idea, or you simply email me at um, hsforsugarl15 at icloud.com, or you phone me up uh, with a whole hog, um, 07976-933549. In the nature of offline, I've always been very careful to avoid any kind of excessive professionalism which is actually why offline in some ways has flourished. And that's why I don't have a membership or a community or a club in that way. And I celebrate random serendipity in that particular way. Fantastic. Well, I, for one, am really looking forward to uh, the dinner, which is in March coming up, isn't March it? March 70th, it's yeah. today. Yeah, March which I couldn't go to the last one because I wasn't feeling too great. But serendipity will hopefully shine on me and something why not? better will happen when well, I, why when not? I when come to the next one. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's been a, it's been a pleasure to um, have you on the podcast today, Howard. I'm very much looking forward to it. Good luck with your book as well. Thank do you. you. When, when do you anticipate that's likely to? Probably sort October. Of in October. Probably. Yeah. The publishers basically say to me that avoid summer and christmas yeah because you'll be competing with dan brown and uh all those sort of andy mcnab and uh, uh, well, andy mcnab he's going to yes. be on the podcast next week right. yeah, yeah just a bit of advance warning for that yeah. one fantastic it's been lovely to to meet you Real and uh, thanks for the coffee earlier as well well look forward to it again yes. let me, let me, as, 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 as and when you dissected my ramblings on this and that i'd be delighted to continue the conversation a man of many stories it's great to be with you thank Pleasure. you very much thanks indeed take care every week here at your london legacy we bring straight to your device a new and fascinating guest with a wonderful London-based story. We hope you enjoy listening to their timeless stories as much as we enjoy creating them for you. If so, the best way to show your appreciation is to subscribe to the show. Simply go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com and pop your name and email in the box where shown. That way, you'll never miss another episode. Thank you for your support.